Good morning. It's great to be able to join with you and to come together to learn from God's Word. Today we are continuing our series in John's Gospel and we come to the start of chapter 17, looking at the first five verses. These verses come at the end of Jesus' teaching in the upper room, his farewell talk to his disciples that spans chapter 13 to 16. This teaching is bookended by prayer. And in this closing prayer here of Jesus's, we see him speaking to his father before his betrayal, arrest and crucifixion about what is most important to him. He prays for the glory of God in verse 1 to 5. He prays for his disciples in verse 6 to 19. And he prays for all who will become his disciples in verse 20 to 26. This prayer opens in chapter 17, verse 1, with the words that if we've been following closely what John has been saying, should make us sit up and pay attention. He says, Father, the hour has come. It's hard to overstate just how significant a moment this is in John's gospel. John, right the way through his gospel, has been ingeniously focusing our attention on who Jesus is and why he has come, drawing our focus to a particular moment in time, to this hour. There is a tangible sense of growing anticipation as this hour approaches in John's Gospel. The anticipation has been building for a long time. As John's own book opens in the beginning, so also we see that this moment, this hour, has been anticipated since the garden in Genesis, when the promise of someone coming to rescue the world from sin was given. It's anticipated in the longing for release from captivity in the Exodus. We see it anticipated in the desire for a king in Samuel, And it is anticipated in Isaiah's predictions that someone would step into the darkness of this world and overcome it. There is a sense of longing, of anticipation and hope that is central to the Bible's story. And here in John 17, we are on the threshold of that hope being realised. The hour is finally here. I don't know if you ever watched the suspenseful series 24 that was very popular on TV about 10 years ago now. It had a very simple trick that brilliantly built a sense of anticipation with a perpetually ticking clock counting down the seconds to the climactic final scene where inevitably Jack Bauer, the hero, would be victorious. John has the equivalent of the 24 ticking clock running throughout his account. In John 2 and verse 4 at the wedding of Cana, we see Jesus say to his mother, What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And again in John 8.20, to explain why Jesus wasn't lynched, we read, No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. But then in John 12, 1, the ticking of the clock becomes a little louder. We read six days before Passover. And then the ticking gets louder in John 13, 1, where in the NIV it says it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew the hour had come. And now we come to John 17, verse 1, where Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. 
The curtain is about to be lifted on the climactic scene of John's Gospel. But before we step into the events of this hour, let us see in Jesus' prayer here the theme of this hour. This hour is at the centre of the Gospel. And as we look at these five verses, we see that at the centre of this hour is the glory of God. This is the hour of glory. The title for this message is just that, the hour of glory. We see the glory of God at the centre of this hour in many ways in these opening five verses. We look at them under four different headings. One, the relationship of glory in verse one between the Son and the Father. Two, the glory of eternal life in verses two and three. Three, the work of glory in verse four. And four, the return of glory in verse five. These four truths all point us to the one big truth contained in these verses, that this hour is about the glory of God. The gospel is about the glory of God. The gospel is not primarily about you, not primarily about what you need and what you get. It is about God and his glory. But before we proceed, I think we should pause to think about what the Bible means by glory. The word glory or glorify that is used five times in these five verses is from the Greek doxazoa, which means to praise, extol, magnify or celebrate. So to give glory in this context is to respond to or to reveal who God is. It is not to add to who God is. John Piper gave a helpful definition of the glory of God in an online interview where he said, I believe the glory of God is the going public of his infinite worth. And he said, I define the holiness of God as the infinite value of God, the infinite intrinsic worth of God. And when that goes public in creation, the heavens are telling the glory of God and human beings are manifesting his glory. He continued, God's glory is the radiance of his holiness, the radiance of his manifold, infinitely worthy, valuable perfections. That's Piper's definition. And he gets this in part, he says, from what we read in Isaiah 6, verse 3, where we see the angels in the presence of God singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. When God's holiness is made known in the earth, we call it glory. So with this understanding of what glory is, let's take a look at verse 1 and our first point where we see the relationship of glory between the Father and the Son. Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. What Jesus asks of God the Father here is not to give something that he doesn't already have, but to reveal to the world who he already is, who he has always been. He asks the Father to reveal to the world his holy perfection and infinite worth and to do it in such a way that allows Jesus to display God the Father's holy perfection and infinite worth to give his father glory. An important point to note here is this, Jesus cannot be glorified 
without the Father being glorified. One can never be elevated relative to the other. One can never be glorified independently of the other since they are of the same essence. They are of the same being. They are united. They are one. They are the same one and only true God. We see this relationship of glory continue right throughout this prayer. In verse 2, where we see Jesus given authority by the Father. In verse 3, where he is sent by the Father. In verse 4, where he glorifies the Father. And in verse 5, where he returns to the Father. It is important to note in verse 3, where we see the phrase, eternal life is to know God, the only true God and Jesus Christ. This is not in any way trying to separate Jesus and God. The only way we could make this verse say that is by forcing it out of its context in this passage. Its context in John's gospel and the context of the wider teaching of the Bible. We see the unity of Jesus with the Father throughout John's gospel. Take John 1.18 for example where it says, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. We see it very clearly in the fact that Jesus here prays to God to give glory to him. When we know from Isaiah chapter 48 verse 2 that God does not give his glory to another. We see in Philippians 2 verse 6 that Jesus was equal with God in every way yet chose to become a man and humble himself. We see in Colossians 1.19, the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus. In Hebrews 1.3, we read that Jesus is the exact representation of God. And in 2 Corinthians 4.6, we see that as we look on the face of Jesus, we see the pure glory of God. Jesus glorifies God because he is God. The Son and the Father share the same holy perfection and infinite worth and therefore give glory one to the other in a relationship of glory. Point two, the glory of eternal life, which we see in verse two and three. In verse two, it is the glory of giving eternal life. And in verse three, the glory of eternal life. This glory of eternal life shows us again that the gospel is about the glory of God. In verse two, we see that the son brings glory to the father by giving eternal life to everyone that the Father has given to him. And in this giving of eternal life, we add more depth to the relationship of glory that we have already just seen. Since it is a work that the Son is qualified for because he has been given authority by the Father. This giving of eternal life is something that was planned in eternity past, Before the creation of the world. We see that in Ephesians 1 and verse 4. It was promised in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15. It was put into motion at the birth of Jesus. It was the very point of Jesus' life and ministry. It was executed at the cross. Guaranteed at his resurrection and ascension. And will come to ultimate fruition when Christ returns again. And at the centre of this great act of giving eternal life, this act of salvation is the holy perfection and infinite worth of God on display. At the centre of the gospel is God's holiness on display. Here we see God is given glory in the giving of eternal life. 
And then in verse 3, we are again shown that the gospel is about the glory of God in how eternal life is defined. The eternal life that we read of in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I think many people read that and don't actually understand what eternal life is. They understand the word eternal only to refer to a span of time. But the eternal life that is promised in the gospel is not just about length of life. It is about quality of life. That is why in John 10.10, Jesus says that he came that we might have life to the full. Eternal life is life to the full. And we see here that the glory of eternal life, life to the full, is to know God. To have him fully and perfectly revealed to us. To know him, not just in an academic head knowledge kind of way, but in an experiential way. To really know him and to experience him. To live forever with the God who is love and to fully know and experience his love. To live forever with the God who is life and to fully know and experience his life. To live forever with the God who is good and perfect and generous and to fully know and experience his goodness and perfect generosity. This is infinitely more attractive than the prospect of simply living forever. The gospel is infinitely more glorious when we see the glory of eternal life is to fully know the God of glory and the glory of God. And then our third point, the work of glory. The theme of glory continues into verse four, where we see that the gospel is about the glory of God in the work of glory. Jesus speaks using the past tense about the glory that he has already brought to the Father. Yet in it, we also see a foretelling of the imminent work of Jesus, giving glory to the Father in his death on the cross. Here we read Jesus say, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. This is true that to this point in Jesus's life, he has been completely obedient and has already glorified his father. He has already made visible the holy perfection and infinite worth of his father in various ways and to many people. At the wedding of Cana, God's glory was revealed. Through the healing of the blind man, God was glorified. Through the raising of Lazarus, glory was given to God the Father through Jesus, God the Son. But the work is not yet fully accomplished. There is one final act of obedience required of the Son. Jesus must go and will go to the cross in the ultimate act of submission and love. To display to the world the holy perfection and infinite worth of God. When Jesus cried out from the cross in John 19.30, it is finished. He was declaring his work of bringing glory to the Father on earth fully complete. The glorious work of salvation accomplished. The purpose of this hour for which Jesus has come is to give glory to his Father in the salvation of sinners through his own judgment on the cross. 
This is central to the cross, the glory of God. It is at the cross that God is shown to be a holy God who hates evil, a just God who punishes wickedness, a merciful God who forgives sinners like me because Jesus took my place, a gracious God who gives me life, a loving God who dies for me, a righteous God who is always good, a faithful God who keeps his promises, a powerful God who takes on death and wins. Here God is shown to be these things and he is these things. God's glory is displayed at the cross. When we see the beauty and worth of the cross, we see the beauty and worth of Christ. And in the face of Christ, we see the glory of God. And then we come to glory returned in verse 5. And finally, in verse 5, knowing that he is about to glorify God through his death, Jesus prays for his Father to glorify him in his presence with the glory he had before the creation of the world. He prays to be returned to the glory of his Father's presence and he prays for glory to be returned to him. We could, I think, wrongly understand verse 5 to be saying something like, return me to the same level of worth, holiness and perfection that I had with you before the creation of the world. But giving glory is the revealing of something already present. Not the giving of something that was absent or lacking. So the more accurate way to read this would be to understand Jesus saying, Father, reveal to people who I am. My true holiness, worth and perfection that I have always had, even now and since before the creation of the world. Jesus in becoming man did not cease to be God, but by taking on flesh, he forfeited the right to be recognised as God. His holiness was veiled from the world to such a degree that Isaiah in chapter 53 tells us that there was nothing in his form or appearance to make people even think he was special. And he was despised and rejected, a rejection that would culminate in his crucifixion. Now, Jesus asks that after this terrible event, the Father would reveal to the world his pre-incarnate, eternal glory. He asks that this would happen when he ascends into his Father's presence after his death and resurrection. How will this happen? How is the pre-incarnate, eternal, holy perfection and infinite worth of Jesus made known? Well, if we glance back to Jesus's teaching on the work of the Holy Spirit that would commence at his departure from this world, we see in John 15, 26 and 27, the Holy Spirit will testify about Jesus along with his followers. And in 16, 14, Jesus says of the Holy Spirit, he will glorify me. Then if we glance forward to John 17, 10, we see Jesus talking about his disciples to his father saying, I am glorified in them. Jesus' holy perfection and infinite worth will be revealed to the world by us. Those of us who are his disciples through the spirit from the Father. This begins now and will continue into eternity. Christian, the glory of God that is at the centre of the gospel and at the centre of this hour 
will be at the centre of your eternal relationship with him forever. In these five short verses, we see that this hour is central to the gospel. And this hour is about the glory of God. We see the glory of God at the centre of the gospel in the relationship of glory, in the glory of eternal life, in the work of glory and in the return of glory. The gospel is about the glory of God and this really matters. Let me outline briefly three areas that I can see this making a difference. One, in evangelism, two, in our prayer life and three, in thinking about our purpose in life. Knowing that the gospel is about the glory of God changes the way we think about evangelism. Who needs the gospel? Because it offers way more than a me-centred gospel ever could. A me-centred gospel puts me and my circumstances, my happiness on a pedestal. A me-centred gospel only appeals if it gives me what I want in life. And if I already have all I want, then a me-centred gospel offers me nothing at all. It is an empty and false gospel. But the true gospel is about the glory of God. This gospel does not promise a life of ease, but an eternity of joy. It gives me eternal life, a life of knowing and enjoying forever the God of glory and the glory of God. So the gospel is not just for those with a felt need. It is not just for the down and out, the poor or the depressed. Our well-to-do, comfortable neighbours who have all that they want but don't know God desperately need the gospel. None of the world's trinkets could ever replace the glory of God that is on offer in the gospel. Only the gospel with God's glory central truly saves and truly satisfies. Knowing that the gospel is about the glory of God should change the way we pray and the things we pray for. Look at what Jesus prays here. In the darkest hour, In the worst of circumstances, facing death, Jesus prays that God would be glorified. What a challenge for us. How often are my prayers driven by a desire for my circumstances to be changed rather than my circumstances to be used to glorify God? When we recognise that God's glory is at the centre of the gospel and at the centre of everything, We can see purpose even in the midst of immense suffering and otherwise pointless circumstances. Because through the greatest of suffering, in the death of Jesus, God was glorified. And in similar fashion, our lowest moments in life can become platforms for God to be glorified. There is nothing wrong with asking for suffering to be removed for pain to cease, for death to be halted. But when, for reasons that we often cannot understand, our suffering lingers, our pain persists, and death seems to overtake us, we can know that our situation is not pointless. Look at how Paul responded to such a situation in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. 
My, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We can take courage when faced with our own weakness in our darkest hour to keep praying a prayer that God always delights to answer. God, glorify your name. And our darkness and weakness can be transformed by the power of God into a platform for the glory of God. Finally, knowing that the gospel is about the glory of God should make us think differently about our place in God's plan, our purposes in life. Because God's glory is revealed to us, it transforms us, it glorifies us, and it is revealed in us. We live to show just how glorious God is, to show to the world now the perfect holiness and infinite worth of God. We live to know his glory, to experience his glory, and to reflect his glory both now and forever in eternity. What an incredibly privileged place God has given to us in his plans. Not even the angels experience this. Our lives have immense purpose because the gospel is about the glory of God. The gospel is about God's glory and not about me. And this makes a big difference. 20 or 30 minutes is not nearly enough time to give to such a massive theme as the glory of God. I encourage you to set aside some time this week to soak in the text that we have briefly looked at this morning. Reflect on the glory of God in the face of Christ and allow the reality that his gospel is about his glory nourish your soul. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it reveals to us your glory. And Lord, we thank you for the the truth that your glory is revealed to us in the face of Christ. That at the cross, we see your glory revealed in your, your justice and in your mercy, in your love and your forgiveness and your grace. And Father, for those of us who have seen your glory at the cross and have taken hold of Christ and the work that he has accomplished for us in bringing us and giving us eternal life, Lord, help us to be transformed so that we might live lives that reflect your glory, that give you glory. Would you help us to to do that even this week? And we pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.